Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. where our our passage is going to go this morning to take your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 6. We've been expositing this gospel for many a month now, and it's been a joy to be able to to study this. And we come to a a larger narrative that I want to tackle this morning. As you well know, that's always difficult for your pastor, but it's helpful to see it um, in its context, in its whole the title of today's sermon is, True Discipleship Could Cost You Your Life. Starting in verse 14, let me read our passage. It reads there, it says, And the king Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miracle, miraculous excuse me, powers are at work in him. But others were saying he is Elijah, and others were saying he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But Herod heard of it. He kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard of him or heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day, excuse me, came when Herod on his birthday gave a a banquet for his lords and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out, and she said to her mother, what shall I ask for? She said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately, she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went 
and he had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. Let us pray. Father, we come to a humbling passage this morning. Oh, the faithfulness of John the Baptist, the boldness that he had. Not to even back down to a king to call a spade a spade and call out a sin. In turn, Lord, we understand that cost John his life. I pray, Lord, that you will help us this morning to to feel the weight of this passage, the importance of it, all of its moving parts, and yet asking, Lord, that you would give us clarity and understanding of the importance of the truth that comes out. This whole passage is about the faithfulness of one man who is faithful to you, and yet, in turn, the end result of that could have the results of losing your head. Spirit, teach us. We pray these things. Be with your shepherd. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Like I said, there's much going on in this passage. A lot of moving parts, a lot of moving people. And to some degree, I, I kind of just want to, <coughs> excuse me, give me a, get a context. I, I think it's helpful because if you have been following with us and, and watching the study, we we just last week just saw the whole issue of Jesus sending and commissioning the 12. And here you have this kind of side story in the midst of this where you have the beheading of John the Baptist only to pick up the disciples again in verse 30 as they come back and report of all the things of their first missionary journey. Jesus had set them out, these, these apostles, with his authority, his supernatural power, wanting them to, to grow in their faith by depending upon him in all things, being content and, and with the circumstances that they found themselves in. Of course, they were commissioned to preach the gospel, to proclaim it without any ashamed. And then, like you say, in verse 30, they come back and report everything that they had done. And so it seems kind of odd that this retelling of John's fate would be here. And so it's wise as a Bible student to ask the question, why is this even here? Why did Mark choose to put this here in the midst of retelling? And of course, he's inspired. God is directing all this. But if you think about it, the first part of this chapter in, in sending out the apostles and commissioning them, it's been fair week. I got a lot of smoke in my lungs. Stephanie has a booth out there, and it's all about smoke, pulled pork, and it eats me up. But let me get back to the text here. So he sends out the apostles, okay? He's commissioning them. These are an extension, of course, of his ministry. He gives them the mandate to proclaim the gospel. Of course, that has implications like we saw last week and how that even filtrates down to the church that we're called out to, to proclaim the gospel to others. 
And then, like you said, towards the end of the section, you, you pick up the apostles, and, and there's this faithfulness of, of what these men have done, and, and there's accountability, and everything kind of wraps together. But the reason I think that Mark gives us this story, this retelling of John the Baptist's beheading is, is because in the midst of it, of the sending and the coming back, I think Mark wants us to understand there's going to be persecution when you follow Christ. The importance of understanding the fact that, that as faithful as a man John the Baptist was, remember Jesus said there's no greater prophet than John who walked this earth, that there's going to be a cost to your following me. And so it, it, it seems to fit well with that understanding of, of how it flows, that God calls us, saves us, and sends us. But also understand in the midst of life, there's going to be great trial. And there also could be persecution. And there also could be a beheading. All this points to the reality of the cost of discipleship. Considering the cost to follow Christ, but in the midst of that following and being faithful, there's also a cost that might even cost you your life. And as Mark is writing, he wants us to understand that each disciple of Christ is sent to proclaim, sent to preach, sent to share the gospel, but there is going to be some opposition. Persecutors, if you haven't experienced that, you will. It will come. They will come with their, their anger and their angst, with their desire to thwart the message as well as the messenger. But Mark wants us to understand that there's a high price and a high cost. And so he's preparing our, our hearts in the midst of that and not to be surprised by the reality that persecution will come. At the core of his argument here in telling us what, about John the Baptist's death is to tell us why believers in Jesus Christ are, are, are persecuted. You can look at this and not only pull out some, some other ideas and views, but in the midst of this passage, the main thought is this argument of, of telling us why people hate Jesus and hate you. Of course, this is helpful. You get a mindset of, of what's going on in, in Herodias as well as King Herod and, and how they interacted with John. It gives us some footings and some understanding. So your outline is, is marked that way. Yeah, I've given you, and the text gives us three reasons why sinners hate Christ and his people and in turn motivates them to go after you. And so he gives us three reasons why believers are persecuted. And as we head to our text, we see the first reason why haters of God and haters of his disciples is, first reason is because persecutors are, misunderstand the power and the person of Jesus. They don't get Jesus right. They, they discard him. Look again at verse 14. Text says in King Herod, and let's stop there because it's one of those things where if you're like me, and even in seminary, you know, you have all these Herods in the Bible. Have you noticed that? You have six in the New Testament alone. Historians tell us that there is roughly 15 Herods in the midst of, of history. So exactly what Herod is this? And 
I remember trying to put this together in my own mind and trying to study, but let me give you try, try to give you a simplistic understanding of which Herod it is and how to sort them through as you go through the Bible. The first one that we find in the Gospels is Herod the Great. This is the Herod of the Christmas story. You well remember the incarnation, the coming of Gabriel, the, the, the proclaimed truth of the Messiah is coming. He is the Herod that we find in that first part of Jesus' incarnation. After his death, it is told that, and history tells us this, that his kingdom was split up into four regions and his four sons ruled, excuse me, a fourth of his kingdom. And so you have one kingdom split up into four, <coughs> four sons ruling over as an extension of the Roman Empire, the land of Israel. Second Herod that we come to in the text, <clears throat> or in the scriptures, in the Gospels, is Herod the great son, Herod Archelaus. He is the Herod who wanted to kill babies. <clears throat> He's the one, after two years of Mary and Joseph being going to, to Egypt, of course, God sent a messenger just to send them away and not to return until he was gone. Third, there's Herod Antipas, and this is the Herod of Mark chapter 6. Herod Antipas, who was the grandson of Herod the Great, who was ruling up in, in the northern in Galilee area, he is the king that is mentioned. And we'll pick up a little bit more about him and his heart as, as we go through the text. Fourth, there's, there's another brother, Herod Philip, which, by the way, plays part in Mark chapter 6. Why? Because... Herod Antipas took his brother's wife, which was the main issue for John the Baptist, right? He ruled up north, in the northeast of the Sea of Galilee. He had married Herodias and plays a part in Mark 6. Fifth, you have Herod Agrippa I. I mean... We just need to get these guys' names, right? I don't know why they go first, second, third, fourth. Kings often do that. But you have Herod Agrippa I, who we will see later in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12. He's the one who was eaten by worms because he failed to give glory to God. And then finally, Herod Agrippa II. He's the Herod in Acts 25 and 26, who Paul was presented to during his third missionary journey. I give you all of that to understand the Herods in the scriptures, and it's helpful for you to kind of kind of understand that it wasn't just one Herod, but there was multiple kings, multiple players that the scriptures are addressing when it talks about. And so every time you see a, the word Herod, you've got to figure out what king is it. Well, like I said, the king Herod is Herod Antipas in Mark 6:14. He's leader over the Sea of Galilee. He, no doubt, was the, the leader over where Jesus and John the Baptist did most of his ministry. He stole, like I said, his brother's wife. Go back to verse 14. Let's move on here. And King Herod heard of it. Heard what? If we go back to verse 13, the whole issue of what was going on, of the apostles being sent out, 
they were casting out many demons and, and anointing with oil and many sick people and healing them. So there was profound. Herod knew about Jesus. He also heard about his apostles. And the apostles had a message that proclaimed who? Jesus. And so he's hearing about all this stirring, and the people are stirred up, and, and they are trying to understand all that's happening and what's going on. And this is, gets pretty interesting. It says there, for his name, speaking about Jesus, had, been, had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Here you have King Herod, Antipas, hearing about Christ and his, his disciples and their ministry, so much so that the text says that his, his name had become well known. Herod couldn't ignore the fact that Jesus, that he had a power, uh, two powers in essence, godly men who were in his region causing commotion, doing godly things. He couldn't ignore the fact of their message too. He's understanding exactly being, get, being reported to, exactly what's being said. And we already know what the message is, right? Mark's already told us in Mark 1.14 that, that Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. Now what's interesting to me, both of these men had um, repentance in their message, right? Sometimes we get a little confusing about what is John really preaching? Remember, John the Baptist was the forerunner. He was the one, the prophet that God sent. Remember, there was 400 years of silence, and finally John the Baptist comes, and he preaches, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent, repent. It's all about repentance, and, and that's just what, exactly what was going to happen, to repent of your sins because the kingdom of God is at hand, and that the Messiah has come. Remember, it is John the Baptist who looked on far and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so he understood this, his significance of, of preparing the people's hearts that the way to get right with God was to repent. And so he's calling people to repent of their sins and get right with God. For there's one who is greater who's going to come and remove your sins. That, of course, being Jesus Christ. And so we know these men had a reputation of preaching with boldness. Jesus, of course, you, you know that he, he would call the Pharisees, the scribes, a brood of vipers. John the, John the Baptist would do the same. I mean, so word is getting around so much so, we even know that, that all the way about 100 miles away in Jerusalem, they're hearing word about the stirrings in Galilee. And so there were some temple officials that were sent to Jerusalem are from Jerusalem out to the Galilee area to figure out what's going on. Rumors had also reached Herod and his officials. But here's the deal. As much as there's a lot of stirring and trying to understand a lot of commotion, they didn't understand exactly what was going on. They didn't understand the person or the power of Jesus. They didn't understand why he was coming. They all had different ideas of his identity. The text tells us that some of them thought that they, he was John the Baptist or, or Elijah. They're trying to guess. Maybe he's an old prophet. And so they're all stirring within their mind trying to figure out Jesus Christ. But here's the point. They missed the deity of Jesus. They missed the fact that he is God in the flesh. And his, and his message of, 
of calling them to repent because he's going to head to the cross, that he is the anointed one that all the Old Testament prophets have prophesied about. And even the New Testament prophet, John the Baptist. These rumors about Jesus would continue on and on during his life. Remember that? I mean, we just had a youth camp about the whole idea, who is, who is, who am I? This question that Jesus would ask his disciples, he understood that there was a bunch of rumors around him, but in particular in Mark 8, as when we get there in a couple, couple months, <laughs> you'll see, you'll see that he is concerned that the disciples as well would understand clearly who he is. And by the way, just as a side note, it is so important that you get Jesus right. You understand that? Your eternity on getting Jesus right is at stake. Why do I say that? There, there are many religions out there that get Jesus wrong. The scriptures are very clear about his deity and about his divine authority and, and the fact that he is God in the flesh. And that, I mean, so it's important to understand that you get the right Jesus because we have a lot of friends, right, who say that they know Jesus, but you have to ask the question, what Jesus? I think it's kind of interesting, too, when you think about the text, um, why John the Baptist would be confused with Jesus. Remember, both of them, to some degree, had a contemporary ministry together. And it was John who baptized Jesus, right? And so it very clearly you would think that he would be eliminated from the list when you think about Jesus as maybe being John the Baptist resurrected, right? But still many believe that Jesus was John the Baptist. Verse 15, others were saying he's Elijah. Others were saying he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. The point here is the preaching, the power of John the Baptist and the preaching and power of Jesus were so profound that the people knew that this was, uh, that these guys were God's men, that they were his prophets. So rumors stir, and they still even stir today exactly, of trying to understand Jesus. It's interesting to me that people will just say and, and can conclude with the fact that, that Jesus was a good man. I mean, they, they at least put him in that category. But of course, you and I both know Jesus was much more than that. Herod heard of these rumors. His conscience starts to stir. He had to choose in his own mind, determining exactly who this Jesus character was? And of course, verse 16 tells us the answer. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying to himself, literally in the Greek, John, it has got to be John. John, whom I beheaded, has risen. Of course, the Greek is emphatic. He's feeling the guilt of, him, of his own soul upon his life. He is the one who was responsible for John to lose his head. He's scared, maybe somewhat remorseful as the text as we continually go on. But they again don't fully understand what God is doing with John the Baptist forerunner and with Jesus, the Lord and Savior. 
And this is often where unbelievers land, right? They are confused about exactly the plan and the purpose of God. They, don't, they just don't get it. They hear of Jesus, but they get what? They dismiss Jesus. Why? Because they think that Jesus has no value for them. We live in such a self-consuming society that, that they're looking for things that they can get out of others. And, and if Jesus has no value, at least in their mind, if they would only understand the importance of the purpose and the power of Christ, they would understand that they need Jesus. But most and all unbelievers just don't get it. All this leads Mark to give a large footnote. I mean, he writes in such a way of, of, of giving us understanding of why Herod is so worked up. And he gives us a flashback. He re reflects back to Herod's beheading of John the Baptist, which leads us to our second reason why believers persecute. And that is because persecutors retaliate against the power and the presence of conviction. They suppress the conviction of what truth has presented itself to be, and so they suppress it. And it's not only Herod, but we see this with Herodias as well. And so here you have it. Flashback begins in verse 17. Mark launches right into it. It says, therefore, Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. Now, if you know the account of the Gospels, you know exactly why Herodias and even Herod didn't like John. He was preaching righteousness. Everybody had known that Herod Antipas had taken his brother's wife and, and, and it, was, it was very public. It was seen. And John does what a godly man does. He points out the sin, and he says, you guys need to repent. Well, you and I both know in those days, you know, the respect of an office, the respect of, of the kingship. I mean, John knew, knew that this was going to cost him something. But his more desire was this, was the word of God. He knew that this relationship violated the Ten Commandments. He knew that it violated the Word of God. He's not afraid of the king here. He's bold. He's more concerned about the holiness and righteousness of God. And boy, do we need that today in today's society, do we not? Too often, I think that we as Christians, we cower to the sinfulness of the world. Call a spade a spade. Call sin or sin. I'm not saying that you go to, the, to your work office and every time you see a sin, you point it out. But I'm, what I'm saying is that when people are habitually rejoicing in the fact of their own sin, we as lovers of Christ and his word, we're going to come alongside and say, you know what? That's a violation <coughs> of the holy God. That's a violation of the word of God. And do you understand the judgment that comes? The judgment that, that comes to the sinner when you desire your own sin and if you desire to stay there without repentance. And that truth needs to be heard and proclaimed. Verse 19, Herodias had a grudge. Of course she does, right? That means John's making her look bad. He's making difficult things within the marriage. 
People are not looking at the queen as what she thinks that they should look at the queen like. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. I guess you got to ask the question, why couldn't she? She's the queen. Well, for one, I think her conscience was so pierced because of the truth when John preached that it angered her. Like I say, this is a public sin. Everybody knew Herod Antipas and what he had done. And not only that, but everybody heard John's message and everybody concluded that's not right. And I think that we would all agree with that. When we see something like that in a public nature and, and our public officials do sin, we would say, what, that is not right. That's not righteous. The truth, when it's proclaimed, exposed her soul and her conscience was pierced. I think, too, as the text will tell us, her husband. Her husband, according to verse 20, kept John safe. And, and so he was kind of a, an obstacle for her in wanting this death sentence. And so instead of repenting, she held a grudge and she wanted him to be put to death. And no doubt you could just envision the, the needling of, his, uh, of the wife towards the husband to have this done. But yet, the text tells us why. Look at verse 20. For Herod was afraid of John. I think that's what kept everything restraint-wise in place. I think everything was going to happen in his timing only until Herod would let go of his fear. Herod was afraid of John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, and he used to enjoy listening to him. I mean, there, there's a lot of things going on here. I mean, back to Herodias, you think about it, just the, the anger and the angst and the hate towards Christ and his truth. And so you know what happens with eternity and with, with the eternal word you, you, you can't do anything with it. And so when you have a messenger speaking truth of righteousness and you've got the word of God that is eternal, you can't do anything with the message, so what do you do? You go after the messenger. And that's exactly what happens. We see that in life today where slander, you try to discredit the one who's bringing forth the judgment and the message of truth. You desire to reboot the messenger so that you can stop hearing the message. That's what our culture desires to do. They want to shut you up. They want to put you and lock you away. They want to label you as hate speech. They want to do all kinds of things to the word of God. And yet, in, in light of the fact, to keep you silent and to keep you locked up. By the way, this is exactly what they did to Jesus, did they not? And this is exactly what they will do to you. I'm not surprised when, when people hurl slanderous insults towards, towards me, towards, towards the ministry, towards our people. Uh, it's one of those things that's very interesting to me. They just don't like the truth. And so they'll do anything to get rid of you. And so be ready, beloved. When you preach the power and the presence of Christ, Conviction will come, and they have to deal with their conviction. Why? Because they have to live with themselves. 
And so the best way to live with themselves is to, to point at the dirt, at somebody else, so that you can be confident in your own mud, your own dirt. However, when you preach and proclaim the, the power and the conviction, the power of Jesus Christ, there's only two ways that the things can happen. Either they will repent and believe, or they will go after you. They will deny the truth and start rising up against the messenger. Now, all this leads to the bulk of what we have left and leads to our third point, and that is that persecutors under evaluate the power of proclamation of the gospel. I mean, they, they just don't get who the person of Jesus is. They hear the power of the gospel, and they are convicted, but they desire to suppress that and push against you. And then thirdly, they, they under-evaluate the power of the proclamation of the gospel. Again, verse 20, it starts saying all these things. Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous man, and he kept him safe. And when he had heard him, I mean, this is what's interesting to me, too. He loved hearing John. But John would often tell Herod, what? To repent. And yet, I think he was intrigued by the man of God, the fact that he wasn't cowardly towards him and his position. And he had him locked up. He no doubt had guards to watch over him. He even had the power to put him to death, but he didn't. But the text tells us that he was afraid of John. To some degree, he knew that John was a representative of the kingdom of God. I think that part, even though, and it's interesting to me, because even unbelievers have this notion of some respect towards the godly, do they not? Like I said, Herod knew to some degree that John was a representative of holiness, of righteousness, no doubt trying to understand these things. Mark, verse 21, here it goes. Mark says this. He says a strategic day came, and literally in the Greek, a, a time. Uh, an important time came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Now, don't you think that's kind of odd? Here's the king who wants to throw a birthday for himself. Uh, doesn't have anybody else throwing it for him. Might explain a little bit about what type of guy he was. But he plans to have a birthday. And he gives a banquet. And he invites all the important people. And they all come. He did so, most likely, to brag about his, his power, his position, his importance. Verse 22 and when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore. He swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. It's pretty interesting to me. And at first glance, you might think, okay, she must have been a good dancer king was pleased in the way they went. What's interesting about the Greek is that that's not what has happened here. And I, and I want to be very cautious how I say this, but it, this is a very um, illicit dance that she performs. It is something that is very sexual in nature. It's charged. No doubt that the men 
in the presence of this gal dancing. Um, they were drunk, and they, they no doubt had their wine and their fill of food. And, and you read that, and it's just kind of like, oh, she just simply danced, and away we go. But the Greek gives us the, the importance of the understanding of what kind of dance this was, and it wasn't good. It wasn't good. Verse 23, again, he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. It's not that he literally could give up half of his kingdom. It's the fact that he pretty much says, I will give you whatever you ask. In other words, the blank check, so to speak, right? He was so pleased in front of his guests that he decided to reward her with the ability to write whatever she wanted. Verse 24, she went out and said to her, her mother, what shall I ask for? Which I think is interesting too. I mean, she's the one who earned the reward, right? But she goes back to her mom, which by the way, Josephus tells us in history, we know her name. Salome is her name. Um, she goes back to her mom, Herodias, which by the way, Salome is the offspring of Philip and Herodias. And so in essence, she's dancing before her stepdad in this situation. Verse 24, she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she responds, the head of John the Baptist. I think this verse tells us how deep the grudge went, her hate towards John the Baptist. She wanted his head over wealth, over luxury. Why? Because her conscience was so pierced by John's preaching. She wanted him eliminated. Verse 25, very familiar word for us immediately. She came in a hurry to the king. It's almost like she busts in on the banquet that's still going on, and she gives her response. She goes, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. I think the interesting idea here, you know, at once, both the daughter and the mother understood of Herod's hesitancy towards killing John. And so in the midst of many witnesses, by the way, text tells us in verse 26 that Herod looks around and realizes that, yeah, I gave this, this opportunity for this gal to ask whatever she wants, and so he's got to keep his oath because of his dinner's guest, verse 26 says. But it also says that he's very sorry, but he was unwilling to refuse her. The idea is here he has to save face, and so he gives the orders. Verse 27, immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went, and he had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. I mean, this is humbling when you think about it. It's flat out wrong, right? What did John do? He was faithful to the truth. There was no trial. There was no appeal, just an execution. 
according to Jerome, who gives us some more color on this, this event, it makes it even more sick. Listen to this. Jerome cites that when Herodias received the head of John the Baptist, she pulled out his tongue and repeatedly stabbed it with an instrument like a kneading needle. Repeatedly. She so hated him that she went to the extreme to take a dead man's tongue and try to mediate it. Verse 29, when the disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body, which implies he had no head, and laid it in a tomb. I don't know about you, every time I read about martyrs, it just, it just rocks me. The cost of following Christ. And here you have John the Baptist. By the way, all but the Apostle John would find a similar fate as apostles. Men who would proclaim, men who would demonstrate the authority that Jesus had given them by healing, they too would find the same fate, losing their life for the sake of the kingdom. It's a, like I say, a very humbling narrative. It's interesting to me, just to back to the whole issue of back when we started with King Herod and thinking that Jesus was John the Baptist. There's a reason why he thought that. In those days, it was thought that when somebody was wrongly executed, that the judgment of God would resurrect the wrong to inflict pain against the one who did it. The thought was that God would send and resurrect the one who was dealt wrongly with and go after the one who did the wrong. And so it makes sense that King Herod, his conscience is pierced and he's pierced and he's pierced, but we don't just leave him here in Mark chapter 6. As a matter of fact, Luke chapter 23, throw it up on the screen, Clover, gives us great insight on this. Starting in verse 6 of Luke 23, it reads, it says, When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, and when he learned that he belonged, this, is, by the way, is Jesus' arrest and, and heading towards the crucifixion and the cross. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, this is Herod Antipas' jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was also in Jerusalem at the time. That is the province of God. Didn't have to send him 100 miles away. King Herod Antipas was already in Jerusalem. It goes on to say, now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus. Why was he very glad when he saw Jesus? Because he realized he was not John the Baptist. That there wasn't a consequence for his actions to behead him. The text goes on, for he wanted to see him for a long time. I'm sure he did. Because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. He questioned him at some length, 
But he answered him nothing. The chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently, and Herod with his soldiers after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. I mean, he was relieved that it wasn't John the Baptist. But what's sad about the whole story is that it was Jesus. And he missed the truth. All this, of course, is ordained by God. It doesn't surprise us. Your fate as well is ordained by God. Your days and how many days you live and hours, minutes, ordained by God. Also, your death is ordained by God. I think that's one of the reasons of our takeaway from this is that there's nothing really to fear. The call is to be faithful. The call is to proclaim Christ. And if people hate you where they're going to try to mangle your body, let them have your body. Why? Because Jesus has your soul. So don't be surprised when persecution comes with a vengeance. And you don't have to look too far over the horizons to see that it's coming with a vengeance. Haters of God, mockers of God, revilers, that's where our culture is going. And they will come and they will seek you out. They'll try to silence you. If you won't be quiet, they'll start slandering you. If that's not the case, let's just get rid of them. But understand, your days are ordained by God. And it's important that we are faithful to him. Amen? Father, we thank you for the, for the morning and for our study. Thank you for the joy it is to just even to walk through a narrative that is so humbling when we look at John. We appreciate his boldness, the fact that he didn't matter. He wasn't a respecter of person when it came to sin. He was more concerned about you, your truth, and your righteousness than he was about his own life. And I pray, Lord, that, that, that we find ourselves there. It's easy to say that when persecution's at bay, but when it rises up and desires to consume us, will we stand in the power of the word? Will we be bold? I pray that you would help us in that endeavor. We want to be men. We want to be women. We want to be children who stand for the truth. Full of our own conviction, because we know it's right, it's holy, it's good. So don't let our knees buckle. Give us strength. Knowing that you will provide in the moment and in the hour the much-needed grace to do such a thing. And so we love you. And ask that you would continue to burn within our souls a desire to know the truth and to grow in the truth. All for the sake of giving Christ the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.